Otherwise, with Nancy Richards. Otherwise, it is Talking Women with me, Nancy Richards, here on SAFM. Well, we're going to start with geography. It's a subject that you might only remember from your school days, but the importance of which in environmental terms is not to be ignored. So says Dr. Carolina Dubé. She is a postdoctoral fellow in geography education in the Department of Education at Rhodes, and she's recently written an article called Improved Geography Education Helps Protect the Environment, uh, based on a recent doctoral study that she did. Well, environmental education and education for sustainable development, this is just some of the things that she's touching on, but we've got her on the line to tell us all about it. Hi, Dr. Dubé. Hello. Oh, you're very, very faint. Can you hear me? Yes. yes oh, that's better. You. Good, good. Okay. So geography, geography education, one of those things that you sometimes people don't think of beyond school days, but you feel that it's very, very important. Just explain to us about your doctoral thesis and, and explain to us where you're coming from. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Um, I, I, I'm a, a, a geographer, you know, having uh, taught geography for uh, over over 20 years, and then um, I, I did uh, my academic studies up to master's level in, in, in geography. Okay, so that's why I'm very passionate about geography education and. What I'm mostly passionate about uh, is uh, the fact that um, through geography education, um, uh, we can um, inculcate, uh, you know, more sustainable uh, lifestyles, you know, to, to protect the environment. Because uh, geography uh, education uh, deals with human environment interaction. And the other uh, characteristic of geography is that it is interdisciplinary, you know. Uh, uh, it uh, studies, issues can be studied from various, various perspectives, from, from a scientific uh, perspective, you know, social perspective, yeah. economic can you give us some give us some practical examples how? Because what you're saying is that better geography education will help protect the environment in the long run. Just give us some examples of how. Uh, okay. Um, uh, look, looking at the the the, the, the methods uh, me- methods of uh, teaching geography, it is, uh, for example, inquiry learning. Uh, that is one of the methods of teaching uh, a geography. And uh, it is, uh, uh, inquiry learning is also recommended for effectively uh, teaching education for sustainable development or uh, environmental uh, education. It, it involves asking questions, asking questions uh, uh, about environmental uh, Issues, uh, and then these questions lead to investigations uh, to find out. Uh, okay, the, uh, for example, the location of uh, the issue, the extent uh, of, 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 of the issue, the causes of the issue, and the ways of resolving uh, the issue. It also involves a fieldwork. Uh, there is also the issues-based approach where geography can be taught in such a way that uh, 
the, 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 teacher, the teaching and learning uh, programs uh, focus on, on specific uh, issues uh, and, and, and so on. So uh, that, that's why I'm, 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 I'm maintaining that better teaching of geography can, can help to, to protect yeah. the, the environment. What were some of the findings then of your research? Uh, that, that's some of my, my findings. I, I worked with um, geography, secondary school geography teachers, grade 10 uh, to 12 in the, in the Western Cape, you know, in diverse contexts. Uh, now, the first finding was that uh, the, the, the teachers have uh, what I could refer to as conceptual issues in as far as the meaning of environmental education, sustainable development, and education for sustainable development. Now, with regards to the, to the meaning of um, uh, environmental education, the teachers have still, still uh, have a, a, a very narrow, the old view of environmental education that it simply refers to conservation education. But, uh, you know, leaving out uh, the, the, the human factors, the, the social, uh, economic, and, and, and political. And then the other uh, thing I found with uh, regards to uh, is, uh, conceptual issues was they, they, they just accept the uh, textbook definition of sustainable development uh, uh, uncritically. And this textbook def the definition is that it is development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to, to meet their, their mm. own needs. And, and it is, um, sustainable development has three pillars, that is the economy, society, and the, and the environment. But where the economy is driving, it, it is difficult to, to balance environmental uh, protection. So the concept is, uh, is problematic. They should be engaging with it, you know. Yeah. Um, and then the education for, for, for sustainable development. This is a, a new concept that, that, that is since the, the early 90, uh, 1990s is gradually replacing environmental education. They were not aware of it. Mm -hmm. So what... what uh, what was revealed to me by these, you know, teachers having conceptual difficulties was uh, this, the fact that the teachers lack training. Uh, um, the, the, teachers, the old teachers' uh, training colleges as well as uh, universities, even probably currently, are not training the, 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 the students, you know, to, 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 to teach. Uh, to effectively teach um, education for sustainable development. Yeah, it seems like there's a bit of education needs to be done all around. Dr. Jubi, uh, just lastly, will people be able to read the results of your research? Will it impact on uh, the educational curriculum? And how can people find out more? Uh, 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 I tell you what, I tell you what, um, I'm going to ask Hazel to get you back because then maybe she can take the details of how we can find out a little bit more and, uh, and I, can, I can read that out.
Okay. Okay. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay. Dr. Carolina Dubé, she a postdoctoral fellow in geography education. I'm sure that she would have uh, brought joy to a lot of geographers' hearts because it definitely seems to be something that's a little underrated. But we'll see if we can find out how you can find out a little bit more about that. You're listening to Otherwise. Stay with us. Here's to the students who stood up to the might of an unjust system. The students who put aside their fear to march for the right to better education. Here's to the young men and women who fought and died for our freedom. Here's to millions of young South Africans who battle new challenges every day. Who overcome poverty and unemployment so they can reach their potential. Here's to the youth of South Africa. Here's to the future of South Africa. The SABC proudly salutes our youth this month. Tonight on Top Billing, we join Gary Bailey and Michelle McLean Bailey at their beautiful recommitment ceremony. In exquisite Namibia. Some say DJ Fresh and Chad LeClow were abducted by an alien. All we know is he's called the Stig. Lloyd Bailey, the man behind our new theme tune, shares his diet tips. And I spend the day with Vernon Philander and try and hit him through the covers for four. <laughs> In your wildest dreams. That's Top Billing tonight, 8.30 on SABC3. Well, here you're listening to Otherwise here on SAFM, uh, South Africa's news and information leader. And we're moving next to uh, uh, African marine debris. Well, it's something on which there's going to be a summit happening in Kirstenbosch this very Saturday. And amongst those attending is Dr. Gladys Okemwa. She's from the Kenyan Marine and Fisheries Institute, and we have her on the line. Hi, Dr. Okemwa. Hello. Welcome to South Africa. Nice to have you with us. Um, marine debris, is it something that is uh, a big issue there in Kenya? Is it something that your institute is addressing already? Uh, the problem of marine debris is a very big challenge in Kenya. And uh, we are trying to address it, but through collaborative efforts with uh, many institutions. Um, sorry, I didn't quite hear that. So there are many, just tell us about the challenges. What, what, is there a very high incidence of it? Yes, yeah, so the high incidence, especially the, the plastic, and particularly um, affecting endangered species like sea turtles. We have lots of sea turtles coming in, stranding in the, in the waters. And this is just one of the challenges that we're trying to deal with in this meeting, how to, um, how to come up with, uh, with ideas that can be, um, that are viable, practical ideas to tackling uh, this problem. I suppose one of the most uh, important things is to find out where it's coming from. Is it possible to identify the debris, uh, the, the source of the debris? Um, a major source of the debris is uh, from land-based activities, like the plastics we're having from the supermarket, plastic water bottles, that's one of the biggest challenges. And in the sea, we have issues of uh, uh, gears, gear lots, gears which are... Which, um, which uh, are discarded, for instance, in the waters and did end up um, trapping animals and tangling them. And also we may have uh, sources from different countries. You may find this are coming into Kenya, but the sources from a country from very far away, like Indonesia. So because this, the litter is transported in the waters to current systems, it's becoming a very big problem, not only in Kenya, but all the countries that, that are yeah. in the water. With the yeah. coastline. A very yes, big yes. problem for your fishing industry too, I would imagine. Yes, it is a, quite, a, quite a big challenge, yeah. 
Is there, what's required then? You know, obviously there's nothing, one, there isn't one solution here, but it's some yeah. sort of educational system, some sort of ban, some sort of uh, fining system for, for the guilty parties. What, if any, measures have you put in place? Um, at the moment, uh, there are certain laws that have been put in place, but I think that sometimes the challenge is the compliance, because in as much as you put laws in place, if, if, the, if the guilty parties are not, don't seem to uh, care, you know, much about it, then we still have the problem. So uh, what we're trying to do is to tackle the problem at all the different levels, you know, from the grassroots, from those who are just using the, the, the waters, to also the institutions or agencies that may be involved in implementing. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to find out a little bit about the outcome from the summit that's happening this Saturday. And I believe that all of you, once you've done your talking, are all going to be taking a trip to uh, Milnerton Beach, to Woodbridge Island, to do a, a bit of a beach clean-up there. Yes, yes. <laughs> so yeah. I hope, you, hope you bought your sort of flip-flops or your Wellington boots or whatever's appropriate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll be a good experience. Yes, it certainly so. will be. Yeah. Lovely. Um, Dr. Okemwa, we're going to leave it that. And sadly, your line is not terribly good. But thank you very much and uh, welcome, as I say, to South Africa and to our beaches. And hopefully you'll, you will be able to help clean them up. Thank you for your time. Take care. Thanks a lot. Well, Dr. Gladys uh, Okemwa there, she's from the Kenyan Marine and Fisheries Research Institute. And it will be interesting to hear what the, uh, what the results of that summit are, because I believe it's a big problem. There's sea turtles, there's all sorts of creatures who are suffering as a result of that. And there's been you know, all sorts of nasty things getting into our fish, which are in turn are polluting um, ourselves right here. Listening to otherwise, don't forget if you've got something you'd like to share in terms of the environment or of women, you can let us know. It's otherwise at safm.co.za. Or you can contact me directly, richardsn at safm.co.za. Otherwise, on SAFM. Well, you'll forgive us, we seem to be battling with our lines a little bit, but going moving on to our next guest, who's Lizette, Lizette Lynette and she's the MD of Mpumalanga Agri-Skills Development and Training, and I think she's also doing her bit for the environment in terms of training people on how best to look after it. Well, we got her on the line. Hi, Lynette. Good afternoon, Nancy. Good. Not a great line either, I'm afraid, by the sounds of it. But, uh, Lynette, tell us a little bit about the Mpumalanga Agri-Skills Development and Training. What are you, how long have you been going and what's your focus? Well, we started off as a non-profit company in 2006. Our model is to take all the supporting services for agri-development, agricultural development into the rural areas. Um, our focus is to try and get emerging farmers, change their mindsets about becoming um, commercial farmers and really make a good living and not trying to survive. And the whole idea is, um, you know, it's easy for a commercial farmer to jump in, in his vehicle and get things done. We in rural areas, when you're far from, from service providers, it's more difficult. So we operate on a virtual and mobile basis and taking the supporting service to the rural areas. Okay. Yes, it's, I suppose it's one thing to move a mindset from subsistence to commercial farming, but once you've moved the mindset, as you quite rightly point out, you still need the, you know, the infrastructure to help you do that. So what are you supplying then? The resources is, is very important. Um, it is difficult for a non-profit company, but the whole idea is, is really to do the whole value chain development. Um, you know, it's easy and one thing to transfer the knowledge and provide the training, 
but you need to apply that knowledge. And if you don't have the resources or the infrastructure, it's actually almost meaningless. So, yes, what we provide is all the, is the technical assistance and the business management and, you know, all the life skills development, and, and we do that on-site. But we're also trying to provide in mechanization and technology, um, meaning that, you know, we subsidize the leasing of, of tractors and equipment when it's necessary. We assist in delivering um, farming inputs. Um, if it's necessary, we assist in, in taking the produce to the market. Uh, because that is really quite um, a huge problem if you're very remote yeah. and you're far from a market and you don't have the infrastructure and you're sitting on a on a you know on a on a gravel road, it, it it becomes a problem. So we're trying to provide all the services right through the value chain. It's not every subsistence farmer who's going to become a commercial farmer. I mean, in in, a, in some ways, you know, subsistence farming, there's a place for it in its own right. But one would like to uplift a number of people into commercial farming because then presumably they will be able to sort of help employ other people and, and uplift the whole area. Many of the people that you're working with, are they women? You will not believe, yes, but um, almost, I think about 53% currently is women. Um, and it, it's, it's fantastic to work with them. Um, they're so willing, they're so dedicated, they're so passionate, and maybe it comes from, you know, to survival. But um, the criteria, and, and you, as you rightly pointed out, it is really important to, um, to, to identify the correct farmer who's got the potential to become commercial. Um, but only by working with the women and, and, and the emerging farmers there's almost a natural selection process that's taking place by working through the, with them. And they sort themselves almost out who will almost stay um, small, small survival farmers or who will really uh, can take the opportunity further and become commercial. So they, are they coming to you? Are you identifying them? How is it working? Well, in the beginning, we went out, I sent my officers in an area and say, listen, um, we will hold an open day, and by word of mouth, you know, people will come to the open day. But um, nowadays, we are being approached by, by farmers phoning us and uh, getting you know, hold of us via the Internet and, and our website. So currently, I must admit, um, we, we're very blessed that um, we're not looking for work. Work is now coming to us. But I think it's because of um, our dedication and the support. Um, if we go into an area, our incubation program runs for three years at least. So for three years, you know, all the challenges that we experience and all the problems we're trying to solve is really to the benefit of the emerging farmer. So it's not a matter that we in and out and, and just provide, um, you know, uh, support in, in the few fields we're trying to do and tackle the challenges with them right to the end. So I think our perseverance and the fact that we're there on a constant basis and we're constant nurturing and we're constant involved with them makes it easier and makes us credible currently that people want to be associated with us. Mm. Yes, a, a big support system is a huge help. I'm going to ask you, Lynette, if you won't just stay on the line because I'd just like to find out what success, if, if any, what success stories you've had so far and how people can get in touch if they would like to avail themselves of your services. So are you okay to stay on the line for a moment? Lovely. Certainly, I'll Thank do you. that. Thank you. Talking to Lynette Besedenhout, she's MD of Mpumalanga Agri-Skills Development and Training.
uh, where 53% of the people taking part in that are women, interestingly. So do stay with us for a little bit more info on that. But right now it's 1.30. Let's get the news headlines from Asanda. Thanks very much, Natalie. And uh, don't forget, you'll be able to hear a whole lot more of that uh, continuing throughout the day here on SAFM. But right now, we're talking to Lynette Besaden-Hote. She's with Mpumalanga's Agri-Skills Development and Training. But you were listening to us earlier talking to Dr. Carolina Dubé. She is a postdoctoral fellow in geography at Rhodes University. And her article, Improved Geography Education Helps Protect the Environment. Well, if you'd like to know more about that, Google her. It's Dr. Caroline, Carolina Dubé, in fact, Dr. Carolina Dubé. Uh, just Google her name and Rhodes University and you will, it will get you right there. But we've got uh, Lynette on the line still. Hi, Lynette. Yes. Yeah, um, thanks yeah, very thank much. You. Just wanted to know uh, success stories that you've had. I mean, you know, g- give, us the, give us the upside of the story. How's it been going? And uh, how can people get in touch if they'd like to take part? Certainly. You know, success for me has got two sides. There's the impact and uh, um, almost uh, the perception from, from the public side. And then you have the individual um, and their perspective of success. If we really take it from our emerging farmers, all our projects are successful because they're all improving. And the impact is maybe small if you compare it um, to the country. But um, we've got really success stories where an elderly woman will tell you that she's really grateful because suddenly she can afford to send her daughter to the technology um, university. And suddenly somebody can can buy um, school uh, school clothes. Um, um, in another instance, one of our projects um, was set up and they have now um, a pack house they're providing to one of our big um, shops. So there is plenty success stories. Um, it's just always dif- difficult to, as I said, you know, the perception from, from the public is like, you know, but it's so small. Yeah. But for us, that, um, that individual is very important. Um, maybe much more important than the financial um, value that you, that you can add to the project. Yes, yes. And, and each individual that you have helped is then going to pass it on to others. Will you be, you know, when you have had, when somebody has done particularly well, would you then be employing that person to, you know, either act like a mentor or pass on what he, she knows? You see, currently how it works, we've been, uh, we are measured um, on our, our targets, and our targets is set to see how many uh, jobs we can create by, um, our, you know, our emerging farmers and uh, the economic growth that's taking place. So we measure and evaluate our projects quite closely. Um, and, and we let them only go when they are, they independently in, the, in their own operations. So we have exit criteria, and they need to meet the exit criteria before we leave a project. Otherwise, we'll take them on for another two years. In some instances, it's possible for them to, to replicate almost, you know, the whole um, model. But in most instances up to now, it's only we, we will re, re, um, retreat when we know that they can operate independently, they can keep records, that they can show that they really um, on their own two legs and, and they don't need us on a, on a constant basis. So the whole incubation program, the idea is to, to duplicate. So once a person is independent, we exit them and we take in new participants. Yeah. And if anybody would like to find out more and perhaps sign up? Yes, they're welcome. Um, we've got a website, www.masdt.com. 
mas.co.za. There's also access and um, info at masdt.co.za uh, through the website where they can send emails. Otherwise, they're welcome to phone us on our landline, which is 013 753 2470. Okay. And we will evaluate every project that comes. Um, it, it's sometimes difficult to get an individual that's not in our operational area currently. Um, but if there's a group, then, you know, it becomes much more cost effective to set up then a project in that specific area. And currently we, we operate in currently almost, um, in, in the whole of the country and all the provinces except for Free State and Northern Cape. But in most of the other provinces, we have um, projects going already. Okay, good. Well, and I'm that's with the support of our uh, financial donors, um, which is Eskom Foundation and private companies like British American Tobacco, and okay. CEDA is one of our, our main funders. All right. So, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give out the website because I, I suspect yes. there's quite a lot of the info there. Yeah. Um, and perhaps people can go there and find out exactly what they need to know in their particular area. Lynette, thank you so much. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you for the interview. Pleasure. Have a Lynette Bethedenhout, MD of Mpumalanga Agri-Skills Development and Training, but they're not just in Mpumalanga by this sounds. If you'd like to find out more, www.masdt.co.za, masdt.co.za, 013-753-2470. We'll put the website up on our Facebook page. Hi, I'm Johnny Clegg. You are listening to SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Otherwise... Well, otherwise it is talking women with a little bit of an environmental theme, as you would have heard running through the show today. And don't forget the Enviro show coming up this evening here on SAFM between 9 and 10. So interesting, therefore, to know that our next guest, guest, David Johnson, who's a writer with a very big interest in human and women's rights, has also focused on the links between education and environmental issues. On his recent visits to Venda and now uh, to the Eastern Cape, very interesting piece in the paper just recently uh, that, uh, written by David called Writing the Wrongs in Rural South Africa, and we have him on the line to tell us all about it. Hi, David. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. Excellent. Thanks very much. Um, let's start off in Venda, because that's where you began. What were you looking for? There was a, a, an event that you were taking part in. Tell us all about it. Well, I was really interested in visiting Venda because of an organization there called the Toyando Victims Empowerment Project. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they do is um, focus both on not only informing women of what their rights are, but actually enabling them to actually use those rights. And I think it's something that's sometimes sort of missing in South Africa. People like to talk about constitutional rights, but then don't enable them to actually carry them out. So they have this program called the um, Zero Tolerance Village Alliance. But they're very culturally aware. So we're in a, a rural setting where the non-reporting of sexual um, violence is the norm and where the local um, equivalent of the dowry, which is Umalo, means that men and, amazingly, women actually think that it entitles men to have sex with their wives whenever they want. So what they do is they work through a, a program to actually work with the community to change their mindset. I would imagine that that's not easy to change people's mindsets unless people want their mindsets to be changed. Are the, were the people coming there willingly, and what was on the agenda? Yeah, absolutely. They, not only were they coming willingly, but it was just such an impressive way that they went about doing it. So there's a huge community buy-in. The king of Vendor is in, uh, approves of the project. They only work in villages when the chief is um, also supportive. 
They get a community uh, committee together that actually runs this scheme. Then community members are the educators, and they have workshops on issues such as child abuse, sexual violence, HIV. Um, and when I was there, I, I met all sorts of people. So I met people that were educators and people being educated. And um, as I said in the article, one of the most shocking things was that the first man that I spoke to admitted that the, the thing that he learned, he needed to go to a workshop to learn that it was wrong to rape his wife. It was so common in the community, it was actually the norm, that he needed to be workshops to, uh, to gain that knowledge. You said there was a community buy-in, people were there, this gentleman, you know, was workshopped, if you like, successfully, and yet there's, there's a tradition, it's the norm, that there's non, non-reporting of any sexual and gender-based violence. So um, people do want to change that, and yet that's how it is. Well, I think obviously um, TVEP has turned up and they've accepted what the situation is, so they're trying to change that. Um, from what I'm aware, that since they've been involved, there has been a huge spike in reported um, rape in the area because previously the women weren't actually aware of what their rights were. But now they've been empowered because TVEP has put help desks in clinics so that there's someone they can actually speak to. The people at those clinics actually hold the police to account. There's a safe house in the village so that they actually have somewhere to escape to should they need to. Female condoms are provided. There's counselling, HIV support groups. They, they work in a very um, culturally aware way, but then actually enable people to use their rights rather than just know what they are. Are the women being given some support then? I mean, you talk about counselling and, you know, raised awareness around police and so on, but... You know, if a woman does report her husband or whoever else it may be, chances are she might get, she might be given a hard time. Who is going to support her in the home? I'm not necessarily sure who's going to support her in her particular home, but because this is so community-wide, it's the, the whole community becomes aware of what's going on. Mm. One of the things I really liked is at the end of their um, days of workshops, there's a, a, a village-wide celebration. Um, so the, the chief will be there. There will, there will be um, traditional forms of singing and dancing, so it's, it fits in with the culture. But then everybody that's present will actually take an oath that they won't tolerate sexual and gender-based violence. So it becomes the norm in the village to actually acknowledge the realities of what's going on behind closed doors. So you, it, it enables people to talk to their neighbours and their family, whereas previously perhaps women didn't actually have anyone to speak to because they were just at home. Yeah, certainly there seems to have been a commitment from your article. The King of Venda actually led the community in taking the Pledge of Zero Tolerance, so that was a good start, but he was showing some sort of um, uh, leadership on that. Yes, I wasn't present at that particular ceremony that he was there, but from everything I've been told, the, the King has been very supportive. And they only work in the villages where the village chief is also very supportive. And um, the, the chief I met thought that this project was was a brilliant one. And he was telling me that he was actually speaking to chiefs of neighbouring communities, encouraging them to join the scheme. Is it just adults who are taking part in, part in, part in the TVEP? Or is it something um, that they're taking to schools as well? Because, you, you know, it's more difficult to change the mindsets of of older people and easier to inculcate different ways of thinking into children? Now, they work with um, all different age groups. I mean, it's important with any project like this that you do need to obviously work with different age groups. That is something they do, yes. And one of the other things that you, you mentioned, that there was not only the pledge ceremony, but also a drama, a sort of enactment of how things could be or should be. Did you witness such a thing? 
No, that's not something I saw, mm. but it just sort of goes to the heart of how they've um, they've come up with a, an intervention that's entirely culturally um, relevant. There's no way that this scheme would work in Mitchell's Plain, but I suspect it could be adapted fairly easily to work in rural parts of the Eastern Cape. But yeah, the, the things like the drama and the dance, obviously, um, are significant to the community. Um, I don't know what your, your your first language sounds like. It would very much be English. Were you challenged at all by uh, the conversation there? Because I'm assuming that it would have happened, you know, in the local language. Yeah, it was it was all in Venda, but I had two people accompanying me for the the whole day that were translating. Um, I think the hard thing was with the, sort of the delays. And um, during one interview, there was about 20 different people, and I didn't know who there was a participant and who was an educator. And the people just sat so impassively when the um, responses were given, and sometimes they were quite shocking. Um, I became so desensitized to the reality of what was going on in the area. I mean, one lady said that she'd learned that um, she, it was wrong to abuse her children. I actually asked her how she was abusing her children. I mean, it, it was just so... Um, seemed so normal. It turned out that she needed to be workshopped to realise that uh, withholding food was not a way to educate children. Yeah. Well, this, this presumably it will be ongoing. I mean, the workshops, there wasn't just one workshop and that, that was it. It will be an ongoing situation. Well, they're, they're rolling this out in lots of places in Venda, yes. But mm. um, I think the whole point is that they've empowered the community. So once the community actually um, understands uh, what the law are, where, where they can go for safe houses, for the support groups remain, the counselling remains, um, hopefully the community can actually run these projects themselves rather than needing someone to come and do a follow-up workshop, even if I'm sure that would be appreciated. Yeah, most importantly, I suppose it's empowered the women. Did you feel that? Um, Yes, I think I did, actually. I mean, it was shocking when there were women in the room and the, the man said that he hadn't realised it was wrong to rape his wife. And none, none of them looked at all surprised by his statement because, of course, it was so common. Um, but, uh, yeah, the women are far more likely to take part in the programme than the men. But, but I, I did get the sense of empowerment, yes. And I think there's also, you know, just going back to your article, there's something called GirlsNet, which is a particular scheme to help uh, work with young women to get them to sort of take more more participant, uh, sort of active leadership roles. Yeah, I'm not so sure that GirlsNet's actually now continuing, but it's obviously uh, another one of the things that's important with this. I mean, the, my, my visit to TVEP was just part of a larger project that I'm involved with. Mm. And... Um, the, the way empowerment is looked at in South Africa, I sometimes think is, is not necessarily the most sensible way. We, we, we don't seem to be looking very much at women's rights and education and seem to be worrying far more about who owns mining companies and those kind of issues. We can't really have real empowerment if um, people are not properly educated and there isn't better women's rights. The, the nature of your, your larger sort of uh, work that you're doing is what exactly? Well, I'm very passionate about raising awareness on the impact of population and consumption growth. So what I'm doing is I'm on a nationwide road trip and I'm going to write 100 articles from across the country. Um, and I'm looking at women's rights and housing, environmental and education issues, but all with a, or through a population lens. So I'm going to focus on um, not statistics, but rather look at personal stories. So I, I like the TVEP project because it enabled me to speak to um, women that were being empowered. But likewise, the rest of the stories will also focus on um, individuals and personal stories. 
And how will your your articles and your personal stories, how will they help the situation? Will they bring it to the attention of a broader public across the world, or do you intend for it to make a difference somehow here? Well, all of the articles will go on my website, and then some of them will be in the Cape Times and also in um, other publications like Africa Geographic. But I think there's a lot of taboos that um, need to be broken down. And, I mean, obviously we've just spoken about the ones in Venda, but yeah. shortly I'm going to be in uh, the Eastern Cape, um, and I'm going to be writing about Ukutwala, so the um, cultural practice of the abduction of young girls into forced marriage. There's, there's all sorts of taboos that we don't like to talk about. I think you might have forwarded the article I recently wrote on um, Pathfinders Project, um, in the, also in Eastern Cape, mm. and the realities of abortion in, in the area, where not only is there no access to um, enable people to access abortion if they want to, but also the, the lack of education and the, um, the fact it's not spoken about and the myths around contraception. Very briefly, David, access, has it been a problem for you to, to, you know, to find the people who will be willing to talk to you? Um, it, it's not easy, but I've been researching this since June. So um, in addition to the research I've been doing for several months, I've partnered with lots of organizations. So mm -hmm. people like Pathfinder have been very helpful um, and can use their network to get me there. And yeah. some of my articles are on um, wildlife and environmental things, and then again, the Endangered Wildlife okay. Trust has been a great partner. So um, I'm, not, I'm not actually doing it alone. I've got lots of yeah. uh, organisations I'm working with. David, out of time, I'm going to uh, give out your website if anybody would like to read a little bit more about what you're up to, and very best of luck in the Eastern Cape. Look forward to hearing how that goes. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Cheers. David Johnson, writer, and if you'd like to find out more, www.toomuchtoomany.co.za, toomuchtoomany.co.za. Next up, uh, here on SFM, it's Sharp Sharp, the children's programme.